Welcome to Let's Talk Sales, the podcast that's all things sales and business development. This podcast series is for CEOs that are looking to build strong companies, sales VPs and sales managers that want to take things to the next level, and of course, for salespeople that are looking to improve. This podcast is brought to you by the Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program. Are you looking to experience a breakthrough in your team's sales? Have you tried sales training in the past but were unable to make it stick? The Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program is a year-long engagement that combines sales and leadership training, a digital sales playbook, and a coaching and accountability process that will change your sales culture and drive sustained growth. Learn more at criteriaforsuccess.com. Today's podcast is a duo series. Our guest today is both a sales leader and an author, so we'll be talking a lot about growth and what he's discovered about sales and marketing. This is Rebecca Toomey, and today I'm talking to Anthony Anarino. Anthony is an international speaker, author, and sales leader. He posts daily sales tips to the insights and insights to the sales blog, and he's also the author of The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, The Lost Art of Closing, and Eat Their Lunch. Anthony, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. This is awesome. I'm very excited. I just got done telling you what a big fan I am of yours, so this is really going to be great, and I'm so excited to be learning from you today. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, awesome. You know, I'm a huge fan of your blog, as I mentioned, and I really love that you've been focusing a lot on video content as well lately. So let's just go ahead and jump into this thing. I would love it. Can you share with our audience a little bit more about your career and how it's progressed? You know, it's I've been I've been asked that question more recently, especially after the third book, Eat Their Lunch. And I, I started to reflect on all of the jobs I had when I was the kid. I was raised by a single mom who had four kids she was raising by herself. My first job was washing dishes, and I did that for a couple years. And then I ended up making cold calls for Muscular Dystrophy Association, trying to get people to have a -a bike-a-thon in their local community. And I did that for about a month, and nobody ever said anything to me, and I don't have any idea what was going on. I was just making calls. Uh And I found an ad in the newspaper where uh, the local skating rink was looking for someone to do lip syncs on Friday and Saturday night. And being 15, I thought that might be very, very cool job to have. And I quit the Muscular Dystrophy Association and went and started working at a skating rink doing lip syncs where I was pretending to be Alice Cooper and people like that. It was probably (laughs) the best job I've ever had. And uh, (laughs) the Muscular Dystrophy Association called me back and they said, we need you to come back. Out of all the people we've hired, you're the only one that has anybody doing a bike a You have two of them going on right now. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, cold calling or hanging out with teenage girls when you're a teenage boy. Hmm, <laughs> let me think this over. Okay, I've got my answer. And, uh, and I never went back. I, I ended up playing uh, a rock and roll from 17 till about 25. I went to work in my family business. And there I was just told to try to help people. And that meant calling people and seeing if there was something that we could do for them. But I I didn't Uh think I was selling. I thought I was helping people. I went to Los Angeles uh, with a band. And I was out there for a number of years. And I ended up with a boss who had recognized that I generated more business than his three salespeople combined. And he fired all of them and forced me to go into outside sales. 
uh, something that I would have never in in my life imagined I would do because at, at that time, the only experience I really had with salespeople was with a car salesperson. And that was a terrible experience for me mm-hmm. and him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I didn't want to be pushy, smarmy, manipulative. I, I didn't want to sell people things that they didn't need. And it, it turned out that none of that is necessary in B2B sales. And I ended up being really good at it. I had a brain surgery in uh, 1992 where I had a piece of the back front right temporal lobe removed because of something called an arterial venous malformation. And mm-hmm. I ended up back in Columbus, Ohio, back in the family business. And I grew that business from three to 50 million. And I started to have people asking me for advice and asking me for coaching and consulting and things like that. And then I started writing every day and I started sharing things and I started speaking and that was sort of my path to where I am now. Okay. Wow. How did your I life change after version. I left a whole lot of stories out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm how, sure. How did it change after? Yeah. How did it change after your surgery? surgery? Did you feel like, um, do you feel like it helped to make you more focused or? Yes. I mean, there, there's two, two things that happen if you're 25 years old and you have a, a life-threatening, you know, incident like that. The mm-hmm. first is you realize that the only thing that really matters are your relationships. And you start to look at the relationships you have in a much, much different way. Uh, the second thing that happens, well, it happened to me and maybe doesn't happen to everyone. I, I started to compensate for having lost a piece of my brain by deciding I was going to use the part of the brain that I had left. And mm. I decided to, I, I was always a reader. I was a reader because I got in trouble a lot as a kid and I would be locked in my room. But you can't lock somebody in their room if if their mind can be, you know, with Hobbits or with Conan the Barbarian or whatever, whatever else I was reading at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to college starting at 26, and I, I graduated summa cum laude with a degree in political science and English after three years. Then I went to law school on the Dean's Academic Scholarship, and then I went to Harvard Business School. So nine years of school. All right in a row. And at one point, I went to my neurologist and said, you know, my brain is on fire. It's creating new neural connections. Everything is clear to me. I'm reading a book a day. And it's because you cut a piece of my brain off. And now there's this new, you know, the there's new connections being made. Wow. That's amazing. For a long time sharing all that. And he said, "Uh, none of that's true. (sighs) You're just freaking out because we cut a piece of your brain off. And uh, there's no evidence to prove that any of that is true. So I, I compensated by trying to to do something with the brain I have. That was my primary reaction. Wow, that's very interesting. Do you? It, it sounds to me like you felt that way. That you really felt that you were developing new things. Do you think it was that? It was just that hyper awareness on the fact that you know you had that little piece taken off. So you were like, let me really focus on what I've got. I mean, I guess that's what you just yeah. said. <laughs> that, that, that is what I did. I mean, it was sort of like you you have a brain. You should try to do something with it. And there's nothing wrong with getting an education, you know, formal or informal. I was reading mm-hmm. books long before I went to college. Okay. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something to me before we jumped on the, to this podcast recording that I really liked. <clears throat> it was that I asked you, well, actually, I'm going to go ahead and ask you this next question because... I really loved what you shared with me about people. You know, you're a really busy guy. Mm-hmm. You're not only accomplishing all of these amazing things, running a business, writing books. You're also hosting a conference. 
and a podcast? Is this true? First of all, and second all of all, how do you do it all? Well, I, I get up really early in the morning, and that, that that's the starting point. I'm I'm normally up between four thirty and five, and oh, wow. I go to bed about nine thirty. So that that okay. is, I mean. The first couple hours of the day, when you get up that early, nobody wants your time. So you can really get a lot of work done. Okay. But the the commitment to getting things done is really, um, and what I shared with you, and I'll share again here for the people that are listening, is that if you do the research on how many human beings have lived on this planet, the estimate is about 108 billion people have lived on this planet. 101.5 billion have died. And if you divide 101.5 by 108, you find out that's about 94%. So I feel that I have a 94% chance of dying at some point in the future, since so far that's what the statistics show is 94% of people that have lived have died. So you gotta get moving. You've gotta decide what you want. You've gotta decide that there's something that you're gonna give yourself over to, and then you just have to start taking action on that. Because mm -hmm. as far as we know, you only get one ticket for this ride, you know, and for a man, yeah. you're gonna get an eviction notice you know, at 78 years old in the form of a heart attack or something like that, and they're going to throw you off the planet. So hmm. whatever you're going to do, you got to start moving. I love that. That is such a fantastic way of thinking about it is just get moving. You're here. You're living your life now. I came across right. a quote earlier this morning when I got up that was something about, you know, I'm going to pull it up real quick so I can speak to it truthfully. It said, note to self, you are not too old and it's not too late. And I think that it, that's something that so many of us think and feel too much that we're like, oh, it's too late to start doing that. I can't, I can't start now. I've been going along all of this time. It's too late. And I just think it's never too late to do anything, whether it's in your career or in your personal life. We can, we always have a shot. We're here. We're still here. We're still alive. Well, I don't know. I, what are your I thoughts on that? I started writing the blog on December 28th. I, I'd been writing the blog for a, a little while, just dabbling. I wasn't in. But I started writing the blog December 28th, 2009. I was 42 years old when I started that. Mm -hmm. And I told my wife I would be keynoting sales conferences within a year. And I was keynoting sales conferences. The first gig I got was 10 months after I made that decision to start sharing everything I know with a group of people that would care about it. Awesome. And uh, as, as soon as I started doing that, and then every, everything has come from that. I decided I was going to write books and, you know, I was going to self-publish a book. And I had Portfolio Penguin reach out to me over Twitter and ask why I hadn't written a book when I actually had. I just hadn't published it. You know, and the book deal came out of that. There, It's never too late. And you know, I have three children. I've got a son who's just turned 21 twin daughters that just turned 19. And they're concerned about what they're going to be when they grow up. Mm -hmm. And it's it's uh, an interesting point of view for me to share with them that I stepped onto the path I'm on now at 42, not at 22, not even mm -hmm. at 32, at 42. Mm -hmm. So it, it can't be too late. You're still breathing. You're still upright. You can do it. That's right. That's right. Now, as your career has grown and developed, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? There's so many. I mean, um, the biggest lessons that I've learned. Um, there's a group of people that need your help. And there's a group of people waiting for you to step up and lead them. They're, they're waiting for you to say, this is what the this is possible for you. This is how you can do better. 
And the beginning of your show, you described this podcast as being for C-level executives. And I think when you're a C-level executive, you get wrapped up in a whole bunch of things. You get wrapped up in the strategy of the business. You absolutely get wrapped up in the financial part of the business. You get wrapped up in board meetings and all of these things. But ultimately, mm-hmm. if you if you want to build something that's sustainable and if you want to make a difference in the world, you have to grow people. And you have to give them something to say, I see something in you that you don't see and I can help you uh, enable that part of you that you haven't enabled yet because you can be more, you can do more, you can have more and you can contribute more. And I, I think that's really what, when all of us are at our best, that's what we're, we're either doing or we're participating in. And the research shows that happiness isn't really what you should be striving for as a human being. What human beings find the most satisfaction from is progress. So mm-hmm. if you're a leader, if you're a C-level executive, then helping people see something in themselves that they don't see is the most important thing you can do. And if you're being led and you show up somewhere, then you should be trying to figure out how to activate that part of you that you haven't activated yet. So you can grow and be more and do more and have more and contribute more and progress because that's what you're supposed to be doing while you're here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. That's so, so deep and so wise. <laughs> I, I love it because you're right. You're absolutely right. What now, what do you think that it takes to be successful then? Progress. I mean, you mm-hmm. in, in the, the, the first problem with progress um, is most people don't sit down and decide what they want. And you get to decide that. One of the questions I get a lot from the Sunday newsletters, people who say, you know, how do you find uh, your, your purpose? How do you find meaning in your work? Mm-hmm. And they, they want there to be some sort of external force that helps you decide what that is. But it's not external. It's intrinsic. You have to decide what you want. That's the hard part for people. There's not an aim. There's not a direction. And they haven't looked into the future to say, what do I want in the future that I don't have right now? For me, what do I want to be? What do I want to do? What do I want to have? What's my contribution going to be? Those four categories tend to cover it. But I've been on a riff lately, uh, Rebecca, where I can't stop thinking about something that's going to end up going into one of the next uh, three books that I write. And it's just how much better of a person future you is than the person you are right now. Oh, absolutely. Present you is not very good. Present (laughs) you wants to eat a donut. Present you wants to watch Netflix. Present you is willing to just go punch the clock and not give themselves over to their work. But future you is a way better person. Future Uh you eats right, exercises, is hydrated, has deep purpose and meaning, is pursuing their goals and, uh, and, if you believe that, then you have to let future you make the decisions for present you right now. Because mm-hmm. future you would tell you, you know what you should do today. You should do something meaningful, purposeful, try to make some contribution. If you decide what you want, though, all those things start to become clear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You just reminded me, I met a woman last night and we were chit-chatting a little bit. And so we're talking about something about the routine, morning routine. And I said, on a good day, I'll get up and work out right away. But, you know, on a bad day, I'll I'll have my tea and procrastinate working out. And she goes, you know, I've been procrastinating that same thing for eight years. Yeah. (laughs) And it just, uh, it just made me laugh because it was like, how many of us fall into that? You know, it's, it's such an easy thing that we'll say, you know what, I'll do it later. And then later becomes eight years. (laughs) That's because tomorrow never comes. I mean, it's always the present. 
I mean, you've, you've never seen tomorrow. You've only just ever had the present. And it's easy to put that off. Mm-hmm. Totally. But you don't have time. You, you don't have time. So we're back to 108 billion people. There you go. I love it. And now you mentioned when we first got on the call and you were sharing your story about when you first started in sales, it wasn't sales per se. It was helping people. So how do you feel about the word sales and what's your perspective on it? You know, do you think that everyone is a salesperson? I know that there's just so much, there's such a stigma around that word right now. I, I don't buy the stigma, and I don't like when people say, you know, stop trying to sell and start trying to help people. Well, what do you think selling is? I mean, you're trying to help them get an outcome they can't get without you, so it is helping people. And okay. I, I think the word sales means you're helping somebody get an outcome they can't get without you. Are, are all people salespeople? Well, let me tell you that I'm, I'm 100% certain that you started out life as a salesperson. And you were really good at it when you were a child. Hmm. You were, they are, uh, you were they are good, to, those kids. <laughs> yes, you were able to get what you wanted. And you were, you were charming because you wanted what you wanted. And so you were going to charm people into helping you have what you want. And you were a great negotiator because, Rebecca, you would probably say something like, if you just give me ice cream, I promise to go to bed on time. And you're mm. already trading value. You already mm. understand the, the, yeah. the nature of negotiation right out of the gate. And if you didn't get your way, you would probably lay on the floor and pound your hands and feet until you got what you wanted. But you would persist for a long time. I don't know if you have children, do you? Not yet. I have lots of nieces okay, and nephews, well, though, nine of okay, them. So then you, you, oh, that's a lot. But you know <laughs> then that they will persist in asking for what they want. Oh, absolutely. And, and they will try to find a way to make a trade for it. But at some point, we lose that. We lose the willingness to persist, and we lose the willingness to, to try to trade value for what we want because we start to get self-conscious about it. And a lot there's all kinds of psychology around this, people not believing they deserve it, people believing that they're an imposter and that they can't ask for those things and that they can't make the difference that they can make. So it's, it gets complicated for adults because we lose a lot of our playful child you know, like nature, which you should try to keep for as long as you can. And I think you started out as a salesperson and you lost it. And you started out as an artist and you lost that too, you know, Mm, because of worrying about judgment and fitting in and all those other things. So is there anything that we could do? Is there anything we could do to overcome that? I'm sorry for talking over you. No, no problem. The, uh, yeah, I think you have to decide, you know, if you're, in sales, if you're trying to grow a sales organization, how do you enable people to help people get the results that they want? It's not about selling them the product or the service or the solution. That, that's what you do to help them get the outcome. But first, you have to help them understand what outcome is available to them. And you have to help them get some vision about what they could or should be doing with their business. That's mm-hmm. the hardest part right now is helping people decide to change. But that has always been the hardest part of helping people grow and get better results is helping them understand the why change. Mm, absolutely. Now, what sparked, I want to talk about your books. Um, and, you know, I thought it was really cool that you just said your next three books. So you're already, you already have a plan to write three more. You're already putting that into the universe that you're going to write three more. Is that what I, is that, did I hear that correctly? Well, I'm going to write a lot more than three more, but the next three. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like it. What sparked your last book, Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away from Your Competition? 
What were you noticing some trends or what really was your motivation behind that book? Well, I, I, I had the structure for all three books for quite some time before I did anything with it. The first book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, was really a competency model. And no one had ever written down yet what you need to have to be a good salesperson in B2B sales now. And it's a certain mindset and a certain skill set. There's things like discipline and optimism and caring and initiative and resourcefulness and all these what you might call character attributes that are necessary if you're going to be successful in sales. But nobody talks about the competencies. And what happened is I would notice people say, you know, that salesperson's terrible at prospecting. And I would say, no, they're good at prospecting. They just have no self-discipline. And mm -hmm. if you've tried to fix the prospecting, you're fixing the wrong problem. You need to fix the root cause. That was the first book. The second book was called The Lost Art of Closing. And that is really, how do you be a consultative salesperson? Well, one mm -hmm. of the ways is you control the process and you make sure that the client makes the right commitments so that they can have the conversations they need to have so they can eventually get the outcome that they want. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that because there's not been a modern a book on closing written, but there's now two. There's mine and James Muir's The Perfect Close. So those are two books that are about the modern way where we close, where we're grownups and we're not trying to use tie downs or smarmy language. Mm -hmm. The third book was the book that I could have written first, but I saved till last because I didn't think I could give it to people until they had the other two books. Okay. And that book is a book about what's called competitive displacement. So that's a euphemism or a nice way of saying stealing your competitors' customers from them. Okay. And what I noticed about all of the sales books that are written, they are they're all high concept and they're they're not practical, tactical. And I've only written practical, tactical books. I want you to be able to do what's in the book at the end of the chapter. And this book is how do you go and take customers away from your competition? And it's interesting to me that a book like Blue Ocean Strategy, where your Airbnb or your Uber and you have no competition, gets all this press and all of these accolades because it's such a wonderful idea. But 97.8% of us work in businesses where growing our business and growing market share means we have to take customers away from our competitors and they're trying to take our customers away from us at the same time. Mm -hmm. But nobody had written a book on how do you execute that. So what I noticed is that most of us uh, are, are engaged in competition every single day, but no one has addressed that subject in a meaningful way. Mm. Interesting. Very me? interesting. Yeah. Okay. No, no, keep going. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was, that was the thing that I noticed. And I was trying, there's a lot of books on prospecting. My friends have written great books on prospecting. Jeb Blunt's Fanatical Prospecting, Mark Hunter's you know, High Profit Prospecting, Mike, mm -hmm. Mike Weinberg's New Sales Simplified. There, that, there's been so much covered there. I didn't really feel like I needed to cover that. And I thought, why not get to the core issue for most salespeople? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And such a great perspective and way to go about it. Now, did you discover that there are some kind of common lies or myths or misconceptions about sales today? I mean, we've talked a little bit about the word and how a lot of people are kind of put off by it, but is there anything else going on in, in the sales world today that you want to dispel today on this show? You know, uh, let's let's deal with the connotation for a minute. I, I taught personal selling to undergrads at Capital University where I went to college. 
And they, they conned me into doing that by telling me I had to teach an MBA class. And then they made me teach undergrads. And it was a miserable <laughs> experience for about the first four days of class because uh, they were waiting for me to show up with a slide deck and lecture to them for two and a half hours. Uh-huh. And I literally showed up with no slides at all. And just a, all, all I had was a reading assignment and a conversation in mind. And it uh-huh. took them a while to get the hang of it. Um, Uh only because the way that they're treated in college isn't fair. But the first class, what I would do is I would ask every student to give me a word to describe salespeople. And it would be pushy, manipulative, Mm. selfish, money grubbing. And they would come up with all of these negative words. And shocking that they're 21 and they already understand the stereotype of salespeople, even though they probably never really bought anything significant in their life. Uh-huh. And after I would get a full whiteboard written up of all these words, I would ask the people whose parents worked in sales to raise their hand. Uh-huh. And out of 30 kids, there might be six whose parents worked in sales. And then I would ask them to keep their hand up only if it was their mom that was in sales. And then there would be two or three people left. And then I would ask them to stand up so I could ask them a question. And I would ask them, do you love your smarmy manipulative, money-grubbing, selfish, self-oriented mom who makes people buy things that they don't really need. And they would start laughing and say, that's nothing like my mom. My mom's (laughs) clients love her. She takes care of them. They're friends. They talk to each other on the weekend. They can't run their business without my mom. And I said, no, hang on. You told me that your mom, you said smarmy, persuasive. You said all these things. Why is that true? And, and no one knows why that connotation still lasts as long as it has when salespeople haven't been that for a long time. If anything, mm-hmm. the trend is the other direction. Salespeople now are too soft and mushy like marshmallows, and they don't even <laughs> want they, they to even ask for a commitment. It's gone mm-hmm. from always be closing to never be closing. And, and now they're really not in control of the process, and they're too... Uh, servile. They're too subservient and, and it doesn't work. And that, that the trend is actually the opposite direction, but I think it's turning back a little bit to where people are realizing buyers have a really tough time making decisions of, of, about what they want and how to get it, mostly because there's so many competing interests and it's hard to get consensus. And the larger the organization, the more difficult it is to get consensus. And you really do have to lead them. So this requires a salesperson who's willing to lead the client on that journey and have the difficult conversations to help them produce the better results they need. Mm. Wow. That's so, it, that's so interesting. It's so interesting that people have that perception. And, you know, I love this test. That was a really very, very cool thing that you did with that class. It worked every class. Every class I had, it worked. It's the same thing every time. The stereotype persists because it's sort of a, it's sort of like a, an uh, archetypal view of, of what salespeople are and do based on, you know, probably mostly Glengarry Glenn Ross or mm-hmm. Boiler Room or these movies where it's portrayed that way. Wolf of Wall yeah. Street, those yeah. kinds of things. Definitely. Um, my, my colleague, Ariana, and I went into Bryant Park one day we, and we did a very similar thing that you did with your class, but with complete strangers. We walked up to strangers and we asked them if we could ask them a question and whether we could record them asking that question. And the question was, what do you think about salespeople or the word sales? And we got a lot of the same stuff, sleazy, grimy, slimy, whatever. 
And it's so funny that you say, you know, then you asked what they, you know, whose parents are in sales because they're afterwards we would ask people what they did for a living. And there was this one guy that I remember saying salespeople are sleazy, you know, shady. He used these words. And then when we asked him what he did, he said, I work in business development. (laughs) And we're like, you just described your own profession in that way. And it's just so funny. It's so funny to me. Well, in, in any endeavor, I mean, there are bad doctors, there's bad lawyers, there's bad politicians, there's bad accountants, you know, there's mm-hmm. bad customer service reps. Of course, there's a bell curve, and on, on one end of that bell curve, you have people who behave badly. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that only happens to salespeople. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. Now, we are transitioning next month into talking about storytelling. And I really wanted to ask you about the importance of storytelling in sales. Do you believe that storytelling is is an important part of the sales process or important in sales? It's important in in human communication. And because sales is uh, a complex, dynamic human interaction with people, storytelling is critically important. And and a, a lot of times... I mean, there's different uses for stories. Sometimes you need to tell a story about what's going on in the world to help people understand why they need to change. And, you know, if, if you look at, uh, I've got a slide with three logos on it. Um, Airbnb, now the largest hotel chain in the world, they don't have any property. Uh, Facebook, the largest publisher in the world, doesn't publish anything, doesn't create any content. Mm-hmm. And then Uber, the largest taxi service or limousine service in the world, and they don't own any cars. Mm-hmm. And and th- those those stories explain you know if you're not looking at your environment and what's going on and changing, then somebody's going to disrupt your business. So there's there's stories that you can tell to help people realize that they need to change. Mm-hmm. There's stories about how do you change, and you can give people examples of this client that we were working with was in this situation, and, and we were able to do this thing with them to get them to this place where they are now. And those are stories that patterns a well-recognized story. It's the hero's journey where somebody shows up and and they're Yoda and they offer Luke Skywalker advice on how to deal with Darth Vader. And, you know, at the end, uh, he's a Jedi. I mean, they're in a different position. And you, uh-huh. you, we know that story and, and it, we recognize it. And it's been useful for human beings to be able to tell that story about uh-huh. slaying the dragon. You know, that that's part of, of what they do. There's a challenge. And you need somebody to help guide you through that challenge. That's what salespeople do. That's a story. Definitely. There's stories about proof. And if you're giving a presentation, when people are asking questions, what they want to hear is, and, and what, especially what the people who execute whatever your solution is, what they want to hear is the, the hypothetical. What would you do if this happens? And they're asking that because it happened and somebody didn't handle it right. And they want you to tell them the story about how you're going to help them when they're in that situation. So all of those stories end up being essential to good salesmanship. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, storytelling is a critical component. And you need a, a small arsenal of stories that you can go to to help people as you're having these conversations. Great. That was actually going to be my next question was how can we become better storytellers? Um, <laughs> there, there are some people who are not good storytellers. They're also not good at telling jokes. And they, they do <laughs> They don't spend enough time giving people. I mean, I, I think that 
it, it depends on your wiring. If you're analytical, I guess you have to be analytical. That's a good thing for you to be. But if you can do anything with levity and a story, it's really useful. I had one that I told in staffing all the time about a client that needed 40 people to work for them full time. And it took me 646 people to keep them staffed. And when we ran the exit interviews, we had one person who gave us a line that we ended up using with their leadership team to explain how they were perceived by the market. And the individual that we queried said, working here is like working in a cross between a prison and a kinder care. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the story was so good that when we shared it with them, they were both horrified and amused because I think they recognized some of themselves in that story. But if you find something that gives people a chance to laugh and, and understand, okay, change is difficult. It's going to be hard, but, but there is a way to get through it, and it doesn't have to be horrible. And we are going to have challenges, but we are going to be able to get these things done. It's super helpful and moving them to act and then helping them execute. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's if great you advice. Have a sense of humor, it's really good to do that. Definitely. It, humor is the best. It is the best way to go about most things in life. If you can kind of see things with a, a light heart, even the serious things, it helps makes makes life a lot easier. Especially in change. I mean, and that's really what we do is we're helping people change. Sure. Totally. Now, all right, books. You mentioned a couple of books earlier, but what are some of your favorite business growth books out there? I heard you're hmm. a big reader. You were reading a book a day, so you, you must have read a lot. <laughs> yeah, I have. I still read a lot. Um, business books. There, there's some books that I would say were transformational for me, and they're not all business books. And I, I okay. tend to read outside of business uh, more than I read business books. I read all of my friends' books. So I read a lot of sales books, but uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, written in 1988, maybe mm-hmm. sold 200. Uh, I, I don't, maybe, I know it's over a million, might be 25 million books now that that that's sold. And there's a reason for that. And the central premise of the book is uh, personal victories precede public victories. And so first be somebody worth you know, having a business relationship with that book mm-hmm. will straighten out a lot of problems that people have. There's a little Certainly. book called mastery by George Leonard, who is an Aikido master. And it's about not dabbling. It's about okay. understanding that you're going to be on the plateau for a long time and staying on the plateau until you have a breakthrough. That's okay. a really, really good book. There's a book called the moral animal by Robert Wright that explains, um, psychological, uh, evolution in a way that makes it practical and tactical for you to think about what human beings need and why we're wired the way we are. Okay. Um, one of my all-time favorites is a book on memes, which is is not uh, cute kitten videos on YouTube. Those are memes <laughs> too, but that's a different kind of meme. The meme I'm talking about is memetics, which is how ideas spread. And Howard Bloom's The Lucifer Principle, a scientific expedition into the forces of history is a really good way to understand that you don't have ideas, that ideas have you, and you're being possessed by an idea, not possessing the idea yourself. And Mm -hmm. it it would change the way you think about sales and marketing in a whole bunch of useful ways. Awesome. I can keep going if you want more. Yeah, I mean... If if you're a leader, (laughs) Straight from the Gut by Jack Welch is a wonderful book. Uh, uh, Only the Paranoid Survived by Andy Grove. Uh, of Intel. That's a great book. There's so many good books. 
if you're in marketing, anything by Seth Godin is worth reading, especially his last one. This is marketing. It's a wonderful book. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, this is quite the list of books. Um, and for our audience, you can find this list in our show notes at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod one four three. Since I haven't mentioned that yet. So jump to those show notes and we'll link to these books there. Now, Anthony, we talk a lot about sales playbooks at CFS and on this podcast because it's really important to build that system of processes, have templates, and just really have a place for salespeople to go and for managers to go to really stay motivated about what they're doing on the day-to-day. Do you have any actionable tips that our listeners might consider adding to their playbook? I've got um, I'm hundreds and hundreds. You, you'll have to narrow that down for what you would want to believe they needed a tip for. And I try sure. to respond to that for you. Let's see. Uh, I would say um, from your most recent work, we were talking about progress. What can, maybe we can focus, hyper-focus on that area. Sure. Let me... Uh, I'll give you one that, that's probably been the most helpful for people out of Ether Lunch right out of the gate where I just get note after note saying I'm booking more meetings than I've ever booked in my life. And okay. it's because of this. And all I've done is taken what we've done in the past and tr- try to make it more valuable. So in the old days, I'm going to call you and say, Rebecca, hi, it's Anthony. I'm with uh, XYZ Company. Love to stop by, introduce myself, tell you a little bit about our company, learn a little bit about you. And, uh, and, and talk about what we might do together in the future. There's no value in that. So you're going to mm-hmm. talk about you, mm-hmm. and you're not that interesting. Then you're mm-hmm. going to talk about your company. That's got to be a thrilling conversation for me. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and then you're going to ask me about how I'm dissatisfied so you can try to tell me that there's a way for it to be better. Thank sure, you. Yeah. No, I have to wash my hair that day. doesn't matter what day you're talking about. That's the day that I'm busy. Uh, it, it's just easy no because there's no value for yep. you. Yep. As I get the, these kind of LinkedIn messages call, all the time. <laughs> LinkedIn is just a disaster with uh, the pitch emails right yes. now. It's unbelievably yep. bad. I it have is. people that are p- pitching me sales training. And I'm like, did you even look at the profile before you did that? <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, really. The other. The other way that you could say that same thing, though, and and create more value to trade for the meeting that you want would be to say, Rebecca, I'm calling you today to ask you for a 20-minute executive briefing where I can share with you the three to four trends that we're following most closely and how it's going to impact your business over the next 18 to 24 months. And some of the questions our clients are asking and we're helping them answer. And listen, even if there's not a next step for me, I still would love to share this briefing with you you're probably going to challenge your management team with some of these things over the next 18 to 24 months, whether we do business together or not. And I'll leave you with the deck. What do you look like Thursday for a 20 minute meet and greet where I can share this executive briefing with you and maybe some of your team? Awesome. That's a very different way of a different approach. It's a different approach, which is one of the reasons it works. And I'm trying to trade enough value. I'm going to tell you about some of the decisions you're probably going to have to make in the next 18 to 24 months because of what's going on in the world. And what executives and decision makers are mostly concerned with is is not what they know, but what they don't know. And if you want to be useful to a C-level executive, the only thing that you can do for them is be able to see around corners that they can't see around. 
They're looking okay. for what they don't know, the insights that they don't have, what could disrupt their business, what have they not considered yet. And if you have a pitch that says, I'm going to be able to answer those questions for you, or I at least have strong opinions and feelings about this, then you're useful to other people in a way that most salespeople aren't yet delivering for them. So that, that, that's probably the kind of thing that I would say, if you can trade more value, if you understand that in every interaction, the idea is to trade enough value for the client to say yes to the next interaction, you start to make selling a lot easier. Absolutely. Wow. What a great, that was a great tip to put in your playbook for sure. A new intro template of sorts for now, when would you use this? Would you use this only over the phone? Would you use this on LinkedIn? How would you use this? I'm, I am, uh, I'm a phone guy and I, I, okay. I don't believe that salespeople should be asking for meetings in, in a scenario where I can ignore your ask and where if I have a concern, you're not there to resolve it. And I don't okay. really believe that salespeople should be pen pals. I mean, if, <laughs> if you have a, a, a longtime friend in prison or something and you decide to write letters to that person, I get it. But you, you're not a pen pal. You're a value creator. And if you send a note saying, please call me back. I'd love to schedule an appointment with you. Why should they call you back? Sure. You, you yeah. want their business. They don't want your business. Yeah. And if you do anything on LinkedIn other than share insights and you show up with a pitch email, you just really, really don't understand selling. I mean, the, the interesting thing about what was called social selling, which no one even uses those words anymore because it doesn't make sense. But the first rule of social selling is be social, don't sell. And mm -hmm. my, my pushback on that was always, well, what, what are you trying to do then? You're just trying to be helpful. Uh, it's, you're being helpful one to many, not one to one. I think the phone is still the very best choice you can make. And if you call someone, you follow it up with a voicemail, you follow it up with an email, and you tell them you're going to try them back, or you nurture the relationship by sharing insights. Uh -huh. But I, I think the best way is to ask over the telephone, because if, in fact, your prospective client has a concern, well, they're, they're going to give you a concern that sounds like, what we used to call objections. It's going to be something mm -hmm. like, can you just email me information? Mm -hmm. They Definitely. don't really want information. What they no. want no. is somebody not to waste their time. So you have to be able to address the concern by saying, listen, I'm asking you for a meeting and I promise I'm not going to waste one minute of your time. It is 20 minutes and you will find value in the presentation that we're going to share with you. And you are going to have great questions about it, whether you do something with us or with someone else. What mm -hmm. do you look like Thursday? I promise it's 20 minutes. They're, they want you to address the fact that you're not going to waste their time. That's the single real objection that you get in prospecting. Sure. Yeah. Now, we have a lot of salespeople that listen to our show, and I'm sure they're wondering, okay, but how do you get people to answer the phone? I call 50 people a day, and only two people pick up my phone calls. I, I hear it all the time. How do we get around that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the first thing that they probably do wrong is it's not the same 50 people. Uh, they tend to call people in Q1, Q2, Q3, and Q4. That's, that's not an effective strategy. You need a cadence or a sequence where you're actually going to reach out to somebody four times in four weeks, and then you're going to start using other channels. But it, mm -hmm. it's hard to get people to answer the phone. There's no doubt about that. But if you call and then you go away and you're gone for 90 days, what you've just trained your prospective client to do is to ignore you because you keep going away. Mm -hmm. if, if you don't put the cadence close enough together that you seem serious 
about what you want to say and what you have to offer, then it's easy for people to ignore you. So it's, again, you're not trading enough value for somebody to say yes. Okay. Okay. Very good. Awesome. Well, you ha are amazing, first of all, and this has been so helpful and insightful. And I know that our audience is going to have great value and takeaways from today's show. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's good to meet you. Yeah, it was good to meet you too. Is there any other wisdom that you want to impart on people before we close out today? Gosh, I've said so many things. I feel bad saying anything else. So I'll just go back and repeat, <laughs> get, get moving, just get moving, whatever you want, decide what it is and start moving towards it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. Good to meet you, Rebecca. You too. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning into today's show. Again, you can find the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod one, four, three. And tune in on Friday for an inspirational quote narrated by Elizabeth. And of course, be sure to tune in on Monday for a special training episode on hiring. And our goal is to help and add value. We love to hear your feedback. So please shoot us an email to podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com and let us know what you like about the show, what you'd like to see change about the show, any feedback. We'd love to hear it. And all month we are writing about hiring on the CFS blog. So be sure to check that out, criteriaforsuccess.com forward slash blog. And next month we will be shifting the focus to storytelling. So it's going to be a really exciting month. Be sure to stay tuned. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by myself here, Rebecca Toomey, Arianna Miskell, and Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling, everyone.